Thank you so much, Adam. And uh, should I say aloha this morning to all of you? Thank you for the wonderful Hawaiian weather you've blessed uh, <laughs> me with this morning. We, we have been back since September 1st, and the weather, weather has been absolutely beautiful. Uh, and I woke up this morning and it was raining, but that's beautiful too. This is God's, God's way of taking care of his world. Uh, it's really ironic that, that uh, Ross is in Romania because that's where my wife is right now. They're not there together. They're in different <laughs> missions. Uh, uh, we have, uh, since 2000, my wife and I have been involved in a ministry to Romania called Romania Building the Next Generation. And a number of uh, Christians from Santa Rosa, from different churches, have been going over every year, once or twice, to work with children from the orphanages in Romania and helping them to come to Christ, to grow in Christ, and building a faithful next generation that will lead uh, Romanians to Christ. Um, So my wife, Sue, is there right now. This is her 12th trip to Romania since 2000. And one young boy that she met 10 years ago is now a young man, and, and he's, uh, he got married yesterday to another girl, a little gypsy girl from the orphanage. They fell in love. They're married, and my wife had the privilege of, of walking them down the aisle as the mother like, that, they, that they never, at least they didn't know. And so she's there, and she'll be back the 1st of November and so I, I really relate to what Ross is doing in Romania. And you know, uh, Ross is over there teaching and preaching. But remember, uh, when you're preaching in Romania, you have a translator. And so a 30-minute 30, 30 sermon is 30 minutes for you and 30 minutes for him. And it comes out to be an hour. So even though Ross may have prepared, let's say, who knows, 40 or 50 hours worth of material, he's up there for twice that long with the translator. And a lot gets lost in the translation. So you're going to hear some very interesting stories from your pastor when he comes home. Let, let me, uh, I, and before I get into the message, uh, just as a way of introduction, I've known Ross for many years, and I love your pastor because he just says it like it is, doesn't he? You know, he's just, uh, he's just right from the heart. You never have to wonder that there's something about Ross that he's hiding from you. He just lets it all out. Um, we... When when we were in Sebastopol and Ross was in two or three different locations in Sebastopol, we we crossed paths many times. Uh, uh, I believe he used our baptistry to baptize some people that he brought to the Lord. He spoke at our church one time. But the, what I remember about Ross meeting him in Sebastopol was that on Main Street, there's a little cookie company, the Sebastopol Cookie Company, and they have a chocolate chip, a white chocolate chip macadamia cookie. That is the best cookie I've ever had. And it was my habit, as I was going to church at Sebastopol Christian Church, just a couple blocks off of Main Street, to stop at the Sebastopol Cookie Company and get my white chocolate chip macadamia nut cookie and some coffee. And about 6.30 in the morning, I would go there, and lo and behold, there's Ross in the cookie company with his Bible on the counter, his notes spread out. And what is he doing? He's cramming. For the sermon on Sunday morning that he was going to preach to this church. Well, not this church, but the church in Sebastopol. And I would kid him and said, come on, Ross. Are you? I said, you're behind it, aren't you, today? He said, yeah, i got to get this, get this ready. Barbara, am I not right on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barbara knows. And I would, uh, we would run into each other quite often at the Sebastopol Cookie Company as I was grabbing my cookie to go up and cram for my sermon. So... <laughs> 
in honor of your pastor, what I did this morning, I'm staying in Sebastopol. Uh, right now, we're, we're kind of homeless. Uh, uh, our, our stuff from Hawaii, you've heard of a, of a slow boat to China? <laughs> from Hawaii to Oakland is a slow boat. The, we were, our stuff was packed to move back to California on August 27th. As of yesterday, it was still sitting at the dock in Honolulu. All the stuff, after seven weeks, wasn't even put on a boat yet. It got on a boat yesterday. They're shipping it over here. And uh, it should be get here on the 23rd of October. It takes a week to ten days when, once it gets here for them to bring it up north to Sebastopol. So hopefully by November 1st, we'll have our furniture that was packed on August 27th. Our house is completely empty right now. There's nothing in it. Uh, we own a home in Sebastopol, and so we're staying in guest homes and uh, at a guest house with a, f- a friend in Sebastopol. But um, uh, to go back to where I was, uh, what was I? I was talking about cramming for a sermon, wasn't I? Yeah. Um, um, okay, now I really, I really lost my train of thought there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but... Oh, yeah, 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 in honor, okay, in honor of, there we go, in honor of Ross. Uh, see, the older you get, the shorter time you have to remember what you were saying five minutes ago, okay. In honor of Ross, I got up this morning early, went to the Sebastopol Cookie Company, ordered a chocolate chip macadamia nut cookie, a cup of coffee, and I crammed for the sermon. You're going to hear it in just a moment, okay. Um <laughs> uh, we have, my wife and I have just returned from two and a half years of ministry in Hawaii, my home uh, and my home church. Uh, after 29 and a half years at Sebastopol, my home church called me and said, Rick, uh, a church of about 450 people had no, no staff whatsoever. Uh, the senior pastor went to work with Youth with a Mission. The youth pastor went back to Ozark Bible College to get married and attend college. And the children's pastor took another church on the other side of the island. So here's a church of 450 people. They had no staff. Everything was done by volunteers. Would you come over here, help build a staff back, and get us back on, on solid ground? And so for the last two and a half years, I have, uh, I have been doing that. And what was shocking about Hawaii, you have never seen a more church-friendly state than the state of Hawaii. You cannot drive past a public school, elementary, middle school, high school, where a church does not meet on Sunday morning. We met in two schools. We had, uh, actually, we had a a facility. We shared uh, a facility with a Samoan church, a a Korean church, a Filipino church, and another church, uh, what they call themselves Light of the World Church, and us, so five of us shared one facility, uh, so much so that we had to move down to the school next door to our, our campus and use the cafeterias of a middle school and an elementary school to hold our services every Sunday morning. And after I first got there, the, on May Day, May 1st is uh, uh, May Day, and in Hawaii it's called Lay Day. Lay is the flowers that you get uh, in honor of your presence uh, or someone wanting to bless you. May Day is Lay Day in Hawaii, and they have a big celebration at the school. All the children come outside, all the teachers, and all the classes perform. They sing, they dance, they, they do Hawaiian things. And, and at this Lay Day celebration, the first in 19, seven, and 2008, excuse me, when I first got there, 
They had guests of honor in, in this. We were all outside of the, of the school here, over a thousand of us between students and teachers and, and parents. And the guests of honor were the, the uh, commanding admiral of Pearl Harbor, which was just right over the hill from where we were, the commanding two-star general from Hickam Field, Hickam Air Force Base, the lieutenant governor, a state senator, and there was a fifth person of honor that was uh, greeted and welcomed and introduced, me. Me, the pastor of the church that met in the school. And I had a special seat. I had a special lays given to me. And they, they asked, along with all these dignitaries, I was one of the honored guests. And this is Pastor Rick Hahn, and he's the pastor of the church that meets here in our school on Sunday morning, and you're all welcome to come. This is a public school. We're not talking about a Christian school, a charter school, a public school. And this is the way it is in Hawaii. I was asked more than once to come and give the opening prayer for a school assembly. And when I was first asked, I said, now I'm a Christian pastor. When I pray, I don't just give a generic amen. I say, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray, amen. We would expect nothing less than that. And I had the privilege of opening school assemblies with prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And when I was done, the amens rang through the audience, and they would even some applaud. This is, and coming from Sonoma County, you understand the show. You understand? Isn't it wonderful? There is a tremendous revival in Hawaii, folks. There, it's, it began about 20 to 25 years ago, and it is sweeping the islands. God is at work in the state of Hawaii. And I know he is in California, too, but I had to share that that uh, wonderful, th- wonderful uh, blessing that was mine with you. Um, let me get into the message I have for you this morning. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to look specifically this morning at the uh, first five verses of chapter 2. And I want to begin with this question. If someone were to ask you, for those of you who are members of The Rock, what is your church all about? In one sentence, what, what would you give as an answer to that? What is The Rock all about? Um, I'm sure if we were to go through the room, there would be many different answers that you might give. But let me give you a biblical answer in just five words. That if you were to give these five words as your answer, this is what the rock is all about, you'd be right on. And it's from these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is. What is the rock all about? Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not about your facility. It's not about your wonderful staff. It's not about your friendliness. It's not about your worship service. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what the rock's all about. And and if you can't amen that, then you need to rethink, what is this all about? What God is doing here at the rock is not because of Ross 
or Adam or Josh or the, the men that I know who are working with or, or anyone else. Now, he uses us. We are the vessels through whom God works, but it's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes on to say, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the true teacher and instructor this morning, because, Lord, your word is the avenue through which your Spirit comes into our hearts and transforms us and remolds us and makes us, Father, into the image of Christ. I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you, Lord, for the history of the rock and for Ross and Barbara and the call you have on their lives and uh, the lives of the others who have become a part of this fellowship, Lord. And we pray that this morning um, we would understand uh, even more fully the significance of, of these five words, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here and being your servant this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I get to those five verses, and there are four things I want to consider from those five verses, I want, I want this to be in context. You know, you've heard it said, a text out of context is a pretext. A text out of context is a pre- Meaning, if you take a text of the Bible out of context and you don't look at it within the context in which it was written, it's a pretext, meaning you can make it say anything you want it to say. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of preaching is today. Sermons made up of verses from here and there and here and there, from this version and that version and that version, and there's no context. And I can take verses from the Bible, from different places of the Bible, and string them together and pretty much say whatever I want to say. But what does God want to say? So we need to go back a few verses. And I know Ross believes this as well. We've, we've talked about this. Preach in the context of the verse. And go back to verse 17. And Paul is talking about the fact that he came to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Someone said you cannot be at the same time clever in your preaching and present the power of God. You have to choose what you want to do. It's the cross that's the power of God. And he says in verse 18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two categories of people in this world, only two. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Into which category do you fall right now? Those who are perishing... Those who are being saved. Well, you say, well, well, I can't really say I'm among those who are being saved, but I don't want to be among those who are perishing. How, how about being in those who are undecided? Well, you know, there is, there is for, a, for a time that category, and there may be some this morning who are undecided. You can't stay there forever. Because not making a decision for Christ is in itself a decision to reject Christ. So there is no category undecided. You are either among those who are perishing or you are among those who are being saved. And notice the present tense. Are perishing, are being saved. It's a process. And what Paul is saying here is that um, the, the message of the cross, and, to, and, and in essence what that is, is that, there, that 
that we're sinners and that the, the penalty for my sin is death, meaning separation from God in this world and eternal separation from God in hell. But one, one day God in his great mercy sent his own son into the world to live a perfect life to complete the the requirements of the law that I could not complete because of my sinfulness. And he did it for me. And then not only did he complete the law for me, he died for me so that I would not have to die for my own sins. That's the message of the cross. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he was indeed the the son of God that he claimed to be and that he had power not not only over sin but over death itself. That's the message of the cross. Now that message is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So this message that I've just really quickly shared, is it foolishness to you or is it the power of God? You know what's happening today in the Christian world? The church is falling all over itself to avoid looking foolish to the world, aren't we? We want to be friends with the world. We want the world to like us. We want the world to be comfortable with us so that when people come into the church, they feel like they're right at home. They're just like us. Are we really? Our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. We're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're bearing fruit for God. And we're just like the world. This does not compute. That does not not mean we are not to welcome the world. We are to reach out to the world. We're to love the world with the love of God. But we're different than the world because of the cross. And we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to everybody who believes the Jew first and also the, and the Gentile. And I think that too many Christians are ashamed of the foolishness of the message of the cross. Don't be ashamed of that. That is something, if there's anything that we are to boast in, it's the cross of Christ, only the cross of Christ, nothing in of ourselves. And so he goes on to say, verse 19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now that comes from... Um, the book of Isaiah, and if you want to go back to Isaiah, that follows, um, it's, it's Isaiah chapter uh, 29. That's 29.14 that Paul uh, quotes, but there's 29.13 in context that makes this re- even more understandable. Here's what Jeremiah, I, I, I'm sorry, Isaiah 29 verse 13 says. Isaiah is prophesying by the Spirit of God to the people of God to God's people, the Jews. And he said, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. And then, then after that verse, then Isaiah says, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What Paul is saying is, is, is this. When you, are, when you try to find God in your own wisdom, or on the other hand, when you try to dismiss God in your own wisdom, either attempt will end in frustration and failure. Because through your own wisdom, you cannot find God. And through your own wisdom, you cannot dismiss God. God is not found through human wisdom. God is found through revelation And he is found personally in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's foolishness to the world. Now you're going to be a fool one way or the other. The world is going to look upon you as a fool because you believe in this message. 
Or God is going to look upon you as a fool because you don't believe his word. I'd rather be a fool to the world's eyes than to God's eyes. Verse 20 says, where's the wise man? Meaning, uh, where does he stand now? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. There's one way to be saved. Don't don't ever be ashamed to admit Jesus is the only way. He's not a way. He's not my way. He's the only way, the one way to be saved. I'm sure that many of you have watched this tremendous drama in Chile of those 33 copper miners being brought up from, what, what, 69 or 70 days of being trapped in this copper mine, one at a time in the, after having drilled through this rock and this, this, little, this little cage that brought them up. Now, can you imagine one of those 33 miners down there saying, well, you know, the rest of you can go up. But if I go up on that cage, then I'm admitting to the people at top that I'm helpless to save myself. I'll find my own way out of this mess. Can you imagine that? Of course not. There's one way out, and it's through that hole in the ground that was drilled from up top, and there's a cage that'll take you up, and they'll bring you up safely. They they all took that way out. And you know, there's one way out of this world, and that's through Jesus Christ and the cross. There is no other way. And in all your wisdom and in all your thinking and in all your reasoning, you're not going to find another way out. You're going to be frustrated. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Because he's writing to a city that was very proud of their wisdom and their philosophy and their, their, um, uh, their scholars. Paul says, no, that's not the way. The way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 23, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Now, when it says Greeks, it means non-Jews or Gentiles. Most of us would be in that category probably. Jews look for signs. The Jews liked miraculous things. They liked lightning to come down from heaven. They liked God to just blast them so they wouldn't have to use any faith. I mean, you can't help but acknowledge this must be of God because look at the sign he sent. The, the Greeks look for wisdom. They like to talk about things and argue about things and philosophize about things. And but, but Paul says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling, block to, um, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So if I'm a fool for God, I'm glad to be a fool for, for, for God. Because my foolishness, which is God's, is wiser than the wisdom of this world. John MacArthur put it this way. A simple, uneducated, untalented, and clumsy believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and who faithfully and humbly follows his word is immeasurably wiser than the brilliant Ph.D. who scoffs at the Bible. And Paul says in verse 26, Verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Isn't that true of you and me? 
you know, I look out on the audience, and I, I've, I've met people that I know from the past here, a few. But most of you I don't know. 95% of you I don't know. But I would venture to guess that there aren't very many of the top scholars and educators in Sonoma County in this room today. I would venture to guess there aren't a lot of judges and lawyers from our court system in this congregation today. What about the movers and shakers of the political community here in Northern California? What about the rich and famous who you find on the society pages of the Press Democrat? I would venture to guess that there may be a few here, but most of us aren't in that category. Why is that? Because when you're in that category, you tend to have a pride that keeps you from, under, uh, from embracing this foolish message of the cross. Now, the cross is for everyone, but never in the history of the church has God ever chosen to build the church on the backs of the, of the highest of the society, but of just the simple, like you and me, who are simple enough to believe that there's a way out and that the way is, that way is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're saying, well, say what you're saying, Rick, is you're looking out and we're not very brilliant and we're not very rich and we're not very influential. Probably so. You're like me. Yeah, we're, we're, we're the same. But, you know, why, does God, why, why has God chosen to, to create the body of Christ from people like us so that he gets the glory? Not us. We're not the rich, the famous, the influential, the smart, the movers and shakers. We're just the average, everyday people of the world who know that we're sinners and we need a Savior. And so the glory goes to God. He is the only one deserving of that glory. And then let me conclude my introduction and get to the word, my message. He goes on to say, He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Remember this, not one of you in here who's a Christian is a Christian from your own initiative. You're a Christian because you were called and you answered the call. You cannot be a Christian without being called of God to be a Christian. The work begins with this Holy Spirit taking the gospel and planting a seed in your heart. Then God begins to work and you can't resist that call. And then when you finally surrender to that call, then you're born again. Here's how in, in the book of John, uh, chapter 6, let me turn back there, verses uh, 43 and 65. The, these verses are important. Remember, uh, there are no volunteer Christians in the world. But John, chapter 6, um, let's see here. John chapter 6, verse 43 says this. Jesus said, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then jumping over to verse 65, and he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And then that next verse, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You know why they turned back? Because they weren't called of God. They were following Jesus of their own initiative. What brought you to, the, to Christ? It was the gospel of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that brought you to the realization, I need Jesus as my Savior and Lord. God called you. 
God called us to be his chosen ones. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. Here's how he defines wisdom from God. Our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. That's true wisdom. Righteousness through the imparted righteousness of Jesus Christ for us. Holiness, because he called us to be holy as he is holy, and redemption through his blood at the cross. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, these four, quickly, um, four things I want us to see about preaching this gospel. Now, most of you will probably never be up at a pulpit like this preaching, but you'll be sharing with your friends the gospel. And remember this, it's not how eloquent you are. It's not whether you have all the answers. It's not whether or not uh, you, you are able to phrase it exactly the right way and take them verse by verse through the process. It's, it's all of God. And he wants a humble servant who might, might stumble over his words or might, might not, not have an answer to the question that she's being asked just to share the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. The message we preach is a humble message. Paul had just come from Athens. You remember ever reading in the Bible from the book of 1 Athens? Or 2 Athens? Ever remember about the church in Athens that Paul started? No, because he didn't start a church in Athens. And he didn't write a book of Athens. He wrote Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, to churches that he planted on the gospel. But when Paul was in Athens, he decided that he would match wits with the philosophers. And so he went to Mars Hill and he matched wits with them and discussed and philosophized. And he had very little success in Athens. He did not plant a church. So when he came to Corinth, the next place, this is when Paul says this right here. When I came to you, brothers, I learned my lesson in Athens. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence like I did in Athens or superior wisdom as I thought I had in Athens as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. It's a very humble message that we preach. And why is it? Because Paul was proclaiming, notice what he says, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. Remember this, when you share your faith, it's not your testimony that you're sharing. It's God's testimony. What does 1 John uh, say about the testimony of God? 1 John chapter 5, 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. How simple. Now, if you were to give your testimony before a law, a court, before a judge in a court, he would want that to be your testimony, not embellished by anybody else, not added to or taken away from. What is your testimony? Well, see, our task is to give God's testimony. And what right do I have to think I can improve on God's testimony or embellish God's testimony? My, my task is to share it simply and sincerely just as God has given it to us. So 
That's why we study the Bible. That's why Ross brings you together every week and you open the Word of God and you have classes so that you can know the testimony of God and share it like Paul shared it, not with eloquence, not with wisdom necessarily, or superior wisdom, the testimony of God. The second thing about this message, it's a simple message. Look at verse uh, verse 2 says, For I resolved to know nothing among you while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, does that mean that every sermon Paul preached was Christ dying on the cross for the sins of the world? No, not necessarily. By the way, you know, you do some time a study of the early church. Um, in the early church, there were no sermons. Sermonizing was not done in the early church. They had no buildings. They had no property. They had no paid staff. They had no budgets. They didn't have programs. It was simply people gathering together in homes, in the marketplace, sharing the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Simple things. But what Paul, what Paul is saying is, when I came to you, the heart of everything that I did was Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul taught about a lot of other things. He taught about spiritual gifts. In this book right here of, of 1 Corinthians, he speaks of spiritual gifts. He speaks of sexual immorality. He speaks of the issue of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. He talks about lawsuits between Christians. He talks about a lot of other things. But what he is saying is that it all comes right back to Christ Jesus and him crucified. Uh, When I was in seminary, one of the required reading assignments was a book, a, a whole bunch of books called Church Dogmatics by Karl Barth, a German theologian. Uh, And... (laughs) It was weighty stuff, I would say half or more that I didn't even understand. But Karl Barth was one of these brilliant theologians that was worlds above everybody else in his day. When Karl Barth was about ready to retire, he came to America. And when someone in, in a conference said, ask him, um, Dr. Barth, as you end your ministry and as you begin to wind down Uh, the work that you've done, and all the tremendous things you've done in the church. What is the most profound Christian doctrine that you've ever learned in your entire life? And you know what he said? Maybe you've heard this before. He said, the most profound thing that I've ever learned in my whole life of teaching is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Karl Barth. What he's saying is this. It's simple, folks. Don't let people complicate the Christian message for you. Don't let people confuse you by all these revelations or all these predictions or everything people are trying to lay on you. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I listen uh, to a program on the radio called the White Horse Inn. The White Horse Inn was an inn in England 400 years ago where theologians would come to discuss theology and mostly Calvinistic theology. And I'm not a, a strong Calvinist, but I, I believe in a lot of it, and there are some things I, I don't necessarily adhere to, but I, I, lo- I love the discussion. And on one of these programs, uh, some theologians were talking, and 
they were talking about this very thing, the centrality of the cross of Christ Jesus, that that, that must be the heart of everything we say and do. And one said, I, I was preaching a sermon on, on the cross of Christ when in walked a man that I knew from another church. And when church was over with, I went up to him and said, well, John, what are you doing here? You're, you're, you're not in your own church this morning. He said, well, I heard you were preaching a, ser- a sermon on Christ crucified. And in my church, we are just starting today a six-week program on how to have a happy marriage. And I'm having trouble in my marriage, so I thought I'd come and hear about Christ crucified to help my marriage. Now, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, There's more, I, will, I will get more benefit out of knowing Christ crucified than out of a six-week seminar on how to have a happy marriage. Now, what, what this is saying is this. When I understand who Jesus Christ is, when I come to grips that he died for me and that he's my Lord and Savior, and I begin to become like him, that will do more for my marriage my business, my integrity, my personal life than anything else that I can do. Christ crucified. Church, don't leave the centrality of the Christian faith. Christ crucified, our hope of glory. Third, the message we preach is a fearful message. Look again at verse 3. Paul says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. What is this fearfulness? Paul, who was Paul afraid of? He wasn't afraid of the, uh, the Roman authorities, that he would be arrested for his preaching. My goodness, Paul went through a lot. Beatings, imprisonments. Uh, they tried to stone him once and being shipwrecked and all these other things. that Paul, Paul the, the fearfulness and the trembling is realizing that he is speaking for God. And there's a fearfulness in getting up and speaking on behalf of the Lord. When I have young preachers come to me and say, Rick, I'm just so nervous about preaching. How do I get over this? I said, you don't. Be thankful that you're nervous. Be grateful. That's the spirit telling you you can't do this on your own. And you need to go to the Sebastopol Cookie Company and cram on Sunday morning to go out to preach. You, cannot, you, you can't just say, oh, I'm preaching today. It's my turn. You can get up and just speak off the top of your head. This is something that is of God. And it can only be accomplished by the power of God. William Barclay said this, For me to enter the pulpit has always been a literally terrifying experience. It's a comfort to find that other people in similar circumstances have felt the same way. It is, I think, in fact, true that if a man enters the pulpit without turning a hair, then it's time that he stops entering the pulpit altogether. You see... What Paul is saying is that I I came in fear and trembling because I know I'm inadequate to do the work that God has called me to do. But God is adequate through me. I need to move on here. And the fourth thing that is that the message that we preach is a powerful message. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, was Paul incapable of being persuasive and wise? Paul was one of the most learned men of the day, sitting under the teaching of Gamaliel. Paul, Paul could have been an extremely persuasive minister. He could have filled his lecture halls with people if he had wanted to. But he said, I'm not going to resort to that. In fact, I'm going to back way off. 
And I'm not going to try to persuade you of anything. I'm going to present the truth of Christ crucified and let the persuasion come from the Holy Spirit. You see, we have to back down. Uh, There are ways, if you wanted to fill this hall and have three services this size, there are ways, there are strategies to fill this place uh, where you'd have to have multiple services. But that's going to be man's persuasion and not God's. And you're not really building on the foundation of Christ. You're building on the foundation of human wisdom and persuasion. And that will one day come to an end. He said, I didn't come with persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Verses 4 to 6, Paul is writing to another church that he was enabled to establish through the work of God. He says, Brothers loved by God, we know that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you and uh, among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And jumping down in verse uh, 9 and 10, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn from God, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The proof of my conversion is my life. And that demonstration that there has been a true transformation in your life is the way that you live your life every day, whether people are watching you or not watching you. It's that demonstration of, of, of the, the power of God to transform your life. The story is told of a man who had been a raging alcoholic for many years, and his family had suffered greatly. And I, I would venture to say I'm speaking to some men or women out in this audience today that without the power of God were there at one time. Maybe you've, maybe you've been rescued from that. And finally one day um, he met Christ. And his life was transformed. And now rather than spending his money, wasting his money on alcohol, he began providing for his family, taking care of them. And one day he was sharing with some friends about his conversion to Christ. And one of his buddies said to him, Now come on, John. You you actually are foolish enough to believe that the Bible is true? He said, "Yes, Yes, I do. You believe all that stuff about Jesus turning water to wine? He said, I don't know about Jesus turning water to wine, but in my home he's turned beer into furniture. And you know, what that man was saying was that his life was transformed. And what is it that God has done in your life to transform you, to make you different? If you can point to nothing, then you need to really examine your life. Have I really come to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have I, and you know, the reason that this message is looked upon as foolish is because it's not just that Christ 
has to go to the cross. But when I come to the cross, I have to go to the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I now live in faith in the Son of God who loved loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. So the cross of Christ necessitates my own cross where I die to myself and to my flesh, and I'm born again as a child of God. That's why the world believes that what we believe is foolishness because it demands something of them. Rabbi, uh, Ravi Zacharias is a preacher who uh, was a part of a, a world, uh, um, uh, a series of, of uh, lectures I, I saw on DVD called The Truth Project. Maybe some of you have seen this Truth Project. It's developing a world concept, a world, I, the word escapes me, real, a world um, worldview, worldview, yeah. How, how, uh, how we develop a, a Christian worldview of what is going on around us. And Rabbi Zacharias was, was sharing a time, he said, when he was lecturing at Ohio State University. And as he was being driven to the university for this lecture, the driver of this particular car was driving him past the um, Wexner Art Center on the campus of Ohio State University. And the driver was boasting about this building. He said, this is the first postmodern building ever built in this campus. Postmodernism is a philosophy where nothing is absolute. There is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. Everything is just what you want to make it. And if for you it's right, it's right. If for you it's good, it's good. And so this building reflected that philosophy. He said, when you go into the building, there are stairways that lead nowhere. (laughs) They just end. There are pillars that support nothing. And there are doors that open to a blank wall. And the idea is that's the way life is. It's confusing. It makes no sense. And and, and the the, the driver was boasting about this tremendous postmodern building that reflects the philosophy of, of the age today. And Rabbi Zacharias said to the, to the driver, I wonder if they use that same philosophy when they built the foundation. <laughs> oh, no. When you build a foundation, it had better be solid and supports better support something. You, you don't build a foundation like this. And, and what he was saying, and Rabbi Zacharias went on, went on to say, he said, you know, when you lay a foundation in your life, you better make sure it is built on solid rock. I love the name of your church, the rock. That's Christ. He is the rock. And I want to end with this old hymn. I'll I'll read the words to this hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what the rock is all about. Remember that. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the joy of gathering together as your people. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, who has transformed us from children of the world to children for the other world, children of God. Lord, it is by your doing that we are here. It is by your doing that we are saved. 
And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will gather us together in your kingdom. But until then, may you bless this church, Lord. Bless Ross and bless the other staff and bless this congregation as they proclaim the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And all the glory, Father, will go to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we conclude today, please.